Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for, for music, music teachers. teachers. You're listening to the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about preparing for a piece using movement. back lovely teachers i hope you're having an excellent week so far we have a new blog post on the blog today from paul myatt and he's talking about using movement in group lessons so paul has a background with some dal crows and kadai and orf approaches and he uses bits and pieces of those in the way that he teaches group lessons I've seen his lessons in action and they're really engaging, really fun. They just are a great experience for all the students involved. He actually came to Dublin quite a few years ago now and we ran a workshop together for teachers and I've been at several conferences. So I've seen it in action is what I'm saying. And it really is a wonderful way for students to learn. I don't want to go into the benefits of using movement and group lessons here or anything like that because I think Paul does that so well. But what I thought I would add is a few different, five to be precise, different ideas for specifically for preparing for a new piece of music using movement to do it. So in other words, how can we do something by moving our bodies that then makes it easier for our student to learn their next piece? This is a basic concept, of course, but it really works. And I know we often get stuck in the same kind of ideas for how we start pieces. So I think these ideas could breathe a brush of fresh air into your studio. First of all, I don't think you need much convincing. So I'm going to give you just two reasons why we should use movement in this way. First of all, movement keeps us thinking because we're moving our bodies in different way, we're going to challenge our students to do different actions for different things. And therefore, if we're thinking, we're learning. We want students actively learning the whole time. We want them actively engaged so that they are learning. The key to that is mixing it up and keeping it fun, because then you don't just hit a wall where students are saying, no, it's too hard. They find it to be just the right level of challenge, and therefore they keep going, keep working, and therefore keep learning. The other reason movement is so great in this way, where we're preparing for pieces, is I find it especially great for any perfectionist student. 
you'll have all ranges of students who sort of fit this criteria, as it were. But these are the students who, when they don't get something right on the first try, they get really upset or they don't want to try it or they think it's too hard or they just won't practice it at home. So if you have students who are quite hard on themselves in this way, doing movement first and basically moving away from the piano to work on things, to prepare for things, is really useful because it feels a lot more to most students like they can make mistakes and they don't self-criticize or self-recriminate. They don't blame themselves for making these mistakes. They're just learning the actions to a dance or a little chant or whatever. They have this connotation in their head that it's fine to do it a bit wrong and it's just a bit silly and fun. Whereas when we're at the piano, a lot of students will have this idea that they need to play it right, correct, everything perfect. We need to shake that idea, but this can also help to make the transition a little bit easier. So I'm going to share five ideas with you in this episode, and these are not specifically taken from any one of my resources. They're just something I came up with as very easy to implement movement ideas. However, I do have loads more movement ideas specifically for rhythm in one of my books. It's called Rhythm in Five. And if you're a Vibrant Music Teaching member, you can access the course where I talk through these ideas and demonstrate them inside the membership. Or if you're not a member and that's not right for you right now, you can just grab the book on Amazon and all the instructions are there for you. So again, that's called Rhythm in Five, the number five. So my first idea is probably the simplest one or the most familiar to most teachers. It's left and right rhythms. I make use of this all the time and I think it's honestly underutilized from what I hear in many teachers' studios. So this is the idea of translating the rhythm of a piece two-handed into movement. It's very simple as a concept, but a lot of the time teachers will go with clapping drills where you work on one rhythm at a time. And whenever you have a two-handed piece, I would recommend doing both hands together. The simplest way to do this is to patch or let's tap them on your legs. So the left types the left hand, the right taps the right hand. Okay, so that's a basic version. If you've never done rhythms in that way, start there because that will honestly take you really far. But then you can start to mix it up. So one thing I like to do is have a student hold different colored pens or pencils with the closed end or the non-sharpened end up and point to the notes in their music in time. So they're actually tapping the note heads on their piece with the correct hand at the correct time. So this really helps with tracking and understanding how rhythm really moves horizontally forward. Another idea is just to mix up the actions on this, you can do all sorts of combinations. So you can do stamping versus clapping. You can do touching your head versus tapping your foot. You can give your student two different rhythm instruments, percussion instruments, one for each hand. Or you can split it up. If they find it too challenging to do both of them right away, that's a good sign that they need a lot more practice with the rhythm before they can start this piece and play it hands together because that's going to be even more challenging. You can also split it up that you do one line and they do the other and then you swap. When they get comfortable with that, you can go back to trying to have them do both hands and you both do both hands. So when you're doing it separated off like that, you've loads of possibilities. You could both clap 
One of you could play, again, one type of percussion instrument and the other another one. One of you could tap your head and the other one could tap the floor. You can make up any combination you like there. A great bridging activity after you've done any of these types of things is to have the student play the piece in the correct rhythm, but just on one note in each hand. So they can pick the notes or you can give them to them. But let's say they have left hand is on G and right hand is on C and they just tap the rhythm of the piece together exactly as it will be, but with just that one note over and over and over. So as if that's all the music says is that one note in the rhythm. Okay, idea number two is to act out the lyrics to the piece. Now, if the piece doesn't have the lyrics, almost even better, you can make up your own. But if the piece you're about to learn has any particularly tricky rhythm patterns, and if you've taught it before, you'll know where students often get the rhythm wrong, like where they often pause at the bar line or don't quite get a dotted rhythm in on time or something like that. So pick out one of those spots, and if it has lyrics, use those, or make up your own, and you can even tailor them to your students. So if they love dragons or Harry Potter or Lego or whatever, you can make the lyrics be about that. And then you can make up actions or a dance to go with those lyrics. I would recommend the actions actually matching it somehow. So you could teach your students the words as a chant first, and even have them help you with composing the dance. Like if it is about Minecraft, maybe you move in that sort of Minecrafty, robotic kind of blocky way. Or if it is about, I don't know, princesses, maybe the movement is more floaty and fluid. Idea number three is what I call get in the groove. Where the previous idea was really about if you have one rhythm spot that you think might be a challenge or might need some preparation. This is about if there is a groove to the whole piece that you need students to get used to so that they feel it the right way. This works particularly great if you have a time signature that a student maybe is not comfortable playing in or a new repeating rhythm pattern. So you might have a piece in 3-4 and you know your student just doesn't play very well in 3-4 yet. They're much more comfortable in 4-4 and they're likely to turn it into 4-4 secretly by putting in some rests or some longer notes by mistake. So this works for that, but it can also work if you have, especially a left hand usually, repeating bass line that's going to happen again and again. It's just the same pattern over and over. This is where you can design a little dance for that time signature. So for 3-4, it can be as simple as a side-to-side waltz pattern. You just step left, two, three, step right, two, three, left, two, three, right, two, three. And you teach them that and you practice it together. And then you play their piece. So it's also like a preview of their piece. And they do the dance. I would recommend playing it yourself versus playing a track. Playing a track, the advantage would be that you can do the dance with them. But if you play it yourself, you can start out with it really slow so that they can do the dance and you can kind of watch and see when they're able to speed it up a little bit. And you can play it over and over and you can repeat just certain parts if you want to. Idea number four is for singing the tune of the piece. So if you think the most likely thing your student needs to prepare for is actually getting the intervals right, getting the tune in their head, then solfa is a great way to go. So that means do, re, mi language. If you're not familiar with the term solfa, 
it will only work comfortably for certain pieces. Obviously, Salva can be applied to everything, but if your student is not super comfortable with it, this works best if it's like a five finger position piece, right? It's going to be easier to remember those patterns. So you can teach them a small chunk of the piece, of the tune of the piece at a time. You can refer to the score or not, depends what you want to focus on, if you want them just to get it in their ear, or if you want them to focus on those intervals and reinforce those by singing, you can look at the score together a little bit, go back and forth between memorizing it and singing it back. Along with this, you want to add some movement. And this is something Paul mentions in his article on the blog as well. And he even has a video to show an example of this. So that would be a great thing to watch. But what we do is we do this in my studio too. We translate that into vertical movement. So it's translating tunes into the ver vertical movement that we see on the staff. You know, the notes go higher if they're higher or lower if they're lower. But on the piano, they're side to side. When you're singing in solfa, if you have, say, just a pentascale, do, re, mi, fa, so, you could have do be your toes, re is your knees, touch your knees, mi is hands on hips, and then fa is touch your shoulders, and so is hands to the sky. And of course, you can include more actions if you've got, say, six notes going on, or seven, or eight, or whatever. So you're going to sing it over and over and do those actions and your students will tolerate a lot more repetitions or even enjoy, dare I say, rather than tolerate a lot more repetitions when you're doing fun actions like this. Because like you'll try and go faster and they'll mess it up and it'll be funny and they'll want to try it again. So they'll really engage with it. My last idea for now, idea number five, is I'm calling it artistic scarves. But if you don't have any scarves, just like small floaty scarves or pieces of fabric, even napkins, like from if they're soft ones from, you know, from a dinner set, but not rigid fabric, something like a cotton lawn, doesn't matter if you don't know what that is. But anyway, softer fabric, small napkins or scarves or that kind of thing, piece of fabric. If you have those, great. If you don't, you can just use your arms in the air like you're a very expressive conductor. Listen to the piece of music together and move to it together. So for this, I would recommend a recording probably rather than you playing because students do need to see some of the possibilities of how you can move to the music and copy you a little bit first before they find their own way of doing it. So you can have them trace the line of the melody going up and down. You can have them find the little bass pattern down low and sort of wiggle their scarf on the floor to find that shape or what it feels like to them. Or you can follow things like dynamics going up and down, the tempo changes or any any aspect of the music that you want to focus on. You can pick it out using movement. And you can use vocabulary for this or describe it to students, but you can honestly just do it with them and they will follow you and they'll naturally pick up on the part of the music that you're following along with. It just makes sense. It's instinctive. So there you have five different ideas. You've got right and left rhythms where you tap out or do some kind of actions for the right hand and the left hand of a piece. You've got acting out the lyrics where you make up your own moves or dance to go along with words of a particular rhythm from the piece. You can practice getting in the groove by making up a dance that emphasizes the time signature or a particular rhythm, repeating rhythm pattern in the piece. You can sing the melody in solfa and touch your toes for the lowest note and work your way up your body as the notes get higher. Or you can use scarves or your hands 
to listen to the music and express it freely in the air. Your one thing of this week is to pick one of these and try it. Maybe it's one you haven't tried for a while, or maybe it's one that's brand new. Try it out in your lessons and see how it goes. If you do try one of these out, I would love to hear how you get on. Please come find me on Instagram and let me know which one you tried and how it went for you in your lessons. We're at Colourful Keys. You can also leave a comment on the article that goes along with this episode if you're not an Instagram person. That's on our Colourful Keys blog at colourfulkeys.com. I'll see you there. One of the awesome benefits for Vibrant Music Teaching members is that they get an exclusive member magazine every month. This magazine brings together our blog articles in a way that is digestible and super actionable. If you want to become a member and get the magazine as well as all the other benefits, you can go to vmt.ninja to sign up. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.